Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, we did have a little bit of a change in speakers this Sunday. You obviously can tell that Paul Wilson's not here. Um, he kind of stands out in the crowd. He's actually in Kansas. He did a, a wedding last night and didn't think he'd make it, so we swapped uh, Sundays that we would preach. So if you got your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and we're going to begin at, at verse 11. But before we do that, I just want to say this. I want to say that we are we're just glad you're here this morning, and every visitor we just want you to know that we are glad you are here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church. And uh, we just want to encourage you. We have a table back there. There's material on it. There's some books. Everything back there is free for your taking. Just take what you want. Read it. If you've got questions, man, we'd love to help you with that. So <clears throat> I'm going to read 11 through... I'm going to read 11 through 16, and then we'll probably go further than that, but I'm going to read that, and then we're going to pray. It says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I'm going to read through 18. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Father, this morning, as we just come before you, I pray, God, that, uh, that as we look at your word, we, my prayer, God, is in all of my inability and my inadequacy, I thank you that you have called me to proclaim your word, that my greatest hope today, Lord, is that you will take your word and you will penetrate the hearts and the ears and your word will not go out and return void, but it will accomplish its purpose. And we pray, God, that in all these things you are glorified, that your word is proclaimed, and that Christ is exalted. Amen. Okay, where we're at, just to start like that, we always want to back up just a bit. In the beginning of chapter 3, we see where, where Peter and John are going to the temple at 3 in the afternoon for the time of prayer. It's one of those moments that you call a divine appointment. And the book that we're in is called the Acts of the Apostles. More appropriately named would be the Acts or the actions of the Holy Spirit working 
in the apostles or the disciples. Because what we see in this is we see that as they were just simply going to pray, down the road the other direction comes some people carrying a man who's been crippled from his birth. And whether these three men didn't even know this appointment was being set up by God, but they all came to the same place at the gate at approximately the same time. The men laid the man at the gate. He sees Peter and John. And he starts begging for alms or starts begging for money. In that day and age, a person that was crippled or something, there was no way they could make a living. It's not like the day we live in. You had to be able to physically do things. There were no IT guys back in that day. And so this guy was simply a liability to his family. I'm not saying they didn't love him, but he was a liability. He couldn't bring anything to the table, so to speak. So about all he could do is beg for alms. And so where's a good place to go? Sit outside your church. People that go to church ought to be a little more giving than the normal people, right? So that's what he does. But at this moment, the Holy Spirit prompts Peter. And he says, look at us. The man looks up, thinking he's going to receive something. And he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And Peter grabs his hand and the man stands up and walks and For the first time in his life, he's able to enter into the temple because the law said anybody that had a blemish, a fault, you were crippled, you couldn't enter into the temple. And this man, he stood out. They walk into church or, you know, the temple. He stands out because this is the only guy in the building that's jumping up and down and probably shouting. The thing I want you to always have in your mind as we go through the book of Acts is this, that we are on mission Missionaries are not certain people that go overseas somewhere or go down to Mexico or something like that. Everybody that's called a believer in Christ is a missionary and you are on mission wherever you are at. And we always want to be ready that whatever God has in store for us, that we are ready to be a faithful witness to what he's called us to. And so here's what happens. It says, while they're in the temple, it says, he clung to Peter and John. This is verse 11. And all the people, they were utterly astounded. They ran to them in the portico called Solomon. Okay, so this is the second sermon in the book of Acts. And if you go to the first sermon, you see that the people heard the sound of a great wind. There was no wind, but there was a sound of it. They saw what looked like fire resting on the apostles. They saw the the disciples speaking in the languages of the nations around them. And they said, what does this mean? Well, some of those people believed in that first sermon and some did not believe. Now, we don't know exactly who these men are at this temple. They're just Jews going to the temple for daily prayer. Some of them possibly could have been in the first sermon. I don't know. But here's what we do know. The first time around, they see people speak in tongues. Now we see a man that was crippled. You have to realize that these people going to prayer, they no doubt saw this man almost every day they were walking into the temple. Everybody that was entering in through this gate, this man was probably there every day. To kind of give you a, a modern day thing, if you've ever been up in Oklahoma City, you'll, you'll get to where you're used to driving in certain places and in certain stopping points or there will be somebody out there like will work for or you know need food and diapers things like that now they're usually sometimes driving a car much better than yours 
you got to wonder about this. But and there's I've even seen videos of fist fights. Like, hey man, this is my territory. You know, you can't beg here. And the point I'm trying to make is people probably were used to seeing this crippled man. They knew that this man could not walk. And so they all run over here. And it says, when Peter saw it, now here we have what? We see the Holy Spirit is about to prompt Peter to preach his second message. When he saw this, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or or our own piety we have made him walk now i want to ask you something why why do you think peter's asking this question i mean why do you think the people were running there well i'm going to tell you what i think about this they had just recently crucified jesus who is the true messiah right but why did they crucify jesus Because he claimed to be God, right? He claimed certain things. And so they put him to death. So what? The people are still looking for the Messiah. A sign like healing a crippled man would be something that the Messiah would do, right? And so I think they were still looking for this. But Peter, he turns and he says, why are you looking at us like in our own power? Or our own pie or goodness that we were able to do this. Why, why are you looking at us? There's nothing to be amazed at us about this. And then what does Peter do? And you'll see this time and time again. And a couple things that I want you to, to notice is this. When you read these sermons, these sermons are not sermons like what we preach when we go out into the streets and preach, are they? Now, if you've never been around street preaching... I've never preached any message like this. Maybe I ought to try it someday. I don't know. But but here's the thing. You need to know the culture. You need to know the people that you're talking to. You need to know what it is that they're looking at. And so looking at is this is are these is one of these guys the Messiah? Well, what does Peter do? Peter goes back and he's always going to go back. In history, he's going to bring people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're going to be witnesses to what is actually going on. They're going to be appealing to the Old Testament fathers. So what does he say? He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, what's he doing? There's not four gods. He's simply saying this, the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and so forth, he's saying... This God glorified his servant, Jesus. Okay? Now, when he uses the word servant, that would have probably resonated in the minds of many of these people that that was a term that was used for the Messiah. It was going to be the servant, his his holy one, his righteous one, his servant, his suffering servant. But he says... This God has glorified his servant, Jesus. How did he do that? Well, a couple ways. There was two times, I think in Matthew, uh, Matthew, oh gosh, it's hard to read my own notes sometimes. And I think it's in Matthew 2, maybe, no, it's in Matthew 3, and then again in Matthew 17. God speaks from heaven. And says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
He glorified him in the presence of many witnesses in one place. And when John baptized him in front of a lot of witnesses and then with the disciples at the transfiguration. But the greatest way that God glorified his servant Jesus was in the resurrection. And you'll know this, that in all through the book of Acts, the resurrection is the emphatic point that is made over and over and over. And I'll say it, and I know that many of you here have heard me say this, but I'll, I'll say this until we really grab a hold of it. When we go proclaim the gospel, most of the time we talk about Jesus dying for our sins. If you preach the modern day the way that most people would preach the gospel today, if you went back in the days of Acts and you took that same message, it wouldn't mean anything. If you went up to a Jew back then and said, do you know that Jesus died on the cross? Yes, I know that. I was there. Well, do you know that he bled and he died? Yes, I was there. That's not the part they have a problem with. The part that is a problem is that if he rose from the dead then he was exactly who he claimed to be. And that is a problem. So, he says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now, look, look at what he's accusing them of. And a lot of times, listen, folks, anytime we go and we're, we're proclaiming the gospel, our, the, the, end, the end goal for us is we want to see the salvation of, of people's souls. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. But so much of the time, we don't want to tell people the bad news. We don't want to tell them where you're really at. It's just this thing that, you know, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, man, if you'll just say this, this prayer, that is not the gospel message. You can't go up to somebody who's been lost in the wilderness and just say, hey, I'm, I've saved you. They may not understand they're lost. You have to demonstrate how that they may know that they are lost and they are undone before a, the one true holy God. And so what does he tell them? He says, God glorified Jesus, whom you delivered over to Pilate, whom you denied in the presence of Pilate, when Pilate really was wanting to release him. But he says this, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one, those are messianic terms. I think when they came, they were looking, maybe this is the Messiah. He's saying, no, you denied and you delivered over the Messiah. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, I want you to listen to me closely at this point. There's been a lot of sermons preached about a man named Barabbas. Barabbas is a picture of us. When, when, when Pilate says, who do you want me to release to you? Because they had a, a custom for the Jews that on, on the Passover, they would release one of the prisoners. He has Jesus who's, who he knows has done no crime. Over here he has a man named Barabbas who was a murderer. He caused a riot. He was a thief. I mean, this was just a vile, wicked man. This is a no-brainer. Who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas, release him. What about Jesus? What has he done? Crucify him. Now, I want you to listen to me today. 
When the message goes out today and we preach Christ to people, you need to understand something. What they did then, if you're an unbeliever, you are still doing today. What they wanted was they wanted to get rid of the only way of salvation. They wanted to establish their own way. They were trusting in themselves in effort to be able to keep a law or a set of rules in their own mind. That's what people do today. I can talk to people and people that are lost and they'll say, I'm just as good as any of them people in your church. Now, whether that's true or not, there's no way to prove that. But I can tell you this. You may be morally a a decent person. You may pay your taxes. You may not cheat on them. You may, you know, always show up on time at work, work hard while you're there, take the, you know, the breaks appropriated to you just perfectly. You do everything right. But if you deny Jesus Christ, if you reject what God is putting to you, and let me tell you something, God is not begging you to come to Christ. He's not sitting over there like we hear so much of the time saying, oh man, we just, we want so bad for you to come there. We see so much potential. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture has come and He says, I command you to repent and bow the knee to me. Now that just flies in the face of our pride, doesn't it? I'm going to tell you this. When you get to the end of the story, I hear people say, well, when I stand before God, I'll just explain my situation. You will explain nothing. God knows everything about you better than you know it yourself. He knows the very deepest intent and thoughts of everything you've ever said, done, or acted upon. You will say nothing. If you deny Christ, you're saying, give me Barabbas. You're you're basically saying, I am that Barabbas, and I think I can do it on my own. I will tell you today that you will be lost for an eternity. He goes on and he says this. Listen to what they've done. They've delivered him over. They've denied him. They've asked for a murder, and then they said, and you killed the author of life. That, that word author means the divine originator. He, all life came from him. Now, one of the things they hated about Jesus was he claimed to be God. I mean, if you go back to Genesis, it says in the beginning, God, right? What did God do? God began to create. God gave life, did he not? And what did they just say? You killed the author of life. In John 1, he says, in him was life. In John, getting bad, getting old. In John eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life outside of Christ. If you reject Christ, you're as guilty as they were. You are guilty of the same crime. The very one that can give you life, you're denying. 
There's something in you saying, I've got time. There's something in you that's telling you, you you're, you're good enough. There's something in you telling you things like, well, I've got to get my life right before I can come to Christ. You cannot do that. I'll tell you this. After you become a believer, you can't be good enough to be accepted on your own merit, even as a believer. Your life is completely in Christ. It is in His life. You live because Christ lives. You want to know why a believer can't lose eternal life? Because you are in Christ and He is life. He is eternal life. And if you're found in Him, you have eternal life. He says, you killed the author of life. Four things they were guilty of. And then he says this, whom God raised from the dead. Here's the problem. And then Peter says, to this we are witnesses. It's an incredible thing to be a witness of Christ. I was talking with Jared yesterday. We kind of do a little Bible study every Saturday morning. Sometimes he's really late, but he makes it. And I said, to know Christ, to know that witness that you know Christ, there is no power on earth that could ever tell you, you don't know Christ. It'd be like telling Kyle, my son, if somebody tried to convince him that I'm not his dad, he would say, I know what you're trying to say, but that's just not true. There's no way you could convince him. Believe it or not, you go look at pictures of me at his age, and we look pretty close, so... He can laugh about the way I look, but here's his future, right? <laughs> he said, we are witnesses. There's no way anybody... You know why? how we know that nobody could have convinced those men that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Because they were willing to die for that very truth. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Others were crucified. We've had martyrs all through church history of people that says, I will not renounce. I will not deny. I can't deny because I know of a truth that he is alive and he lives in me. We are witnesses with Peter that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he gets back to their question, why they, they came. And he says, in his name... By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, people argue over, I've seen, I've read the commentaries and they say, and, and in his name and faith in his name has made this man whole. One, the ESV study Bible, I totally disagree with them, along with MacArthur. I love John, but. He says it was the faith of Peter and John and not the faith of this man. I disagree with that. I think it was the faith of both. The, the reasoning they say is they say, well, this man didn't know Jesus, so it would be impossible for him to have faith in that. Well, the reason I disagree with that is this. When you go proclaim the gospel and you're sharing the gospel and you're talking about Jesus can save you today, they may have never heard about him. They may not know anything about him but at that moment that the Holy Spirit imparts faith 
and regenerates the heart. It is the faith that they have that is a gift. And I think that is the same faith that when this man looked up, because I believe it was a divine appointment that the Holy Spirit brought those three men together, that yes, indeed, Peter and John had faith to believe God could heal him. But when that man looked up and Peter, he said these words to him, he says, I don't have silver and gold to give to you, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I believe at that instant the Holy Spirit imparted faith to that man to believe. Now, you can disagree with me all you want. Probably not going to convince me. And he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now, a lot of times I see I see preachers, street preachers get out there and they hammer down, you know, they, they're preaching, you know, they're, they're demonstrating that people are lost. And I mean, you see a lot of these videos and it gets pretty, you know, pretty heated, you know. But oftentimes I don't see the part, and I'm not saying all the time, because there's many of them that do it fantastic. But it was some of them, it's just always about you sinners, you wicked people. And, you know, and they, and they do scream repent, you know, but they never really bring the good news in. You see, you can't just tell people one side of things and say, you did this, you were guilty of this, you've been guilty of that. You sinners and you crucified him and you denied him and you rejected him. And You have to go to the place that the, the gospel is meant to, to take you. Where people can hear the gospel and be saved. He says, I know that you did it through ignorance. It's, it's also your rulers did. I want to ask you something. When the light of the gospel shined upon your heart, did it all of a sudden, did you not realize how guilty you were? And how that when you did these things, isn't it amazing how good we are as sinners, how we justify every sin that we do? If we lie, we have a justification for it. If we fornicate, we have a justification for it. Somehow our sin is never really that bad because we did it because of this and this and this. And I didn't mean to do this and this. So somehow we alleviate the the gravity and the depth of how sinful we are. But all of a sudden when the gospel light shines upon your heart and exposes your sin for what it is, all of a sudden that all flies away, doesn't it? You realize I am a wicked sinner. When God began to really open up to me what Christ done for me, you know what the only words I could say was? Why me? Why would God set his love and his affection on me? I know what I'm guilty of. I know how I tried to justify it even to myself. Things I've never shared with anybody. How I, how I justified that in my own mind and heart. And how when God exposed it, all I could do is just cry with tears coming down my face saying, why would you save me? I wouldn't have saved me. He says you did it in ignorance, but ignorance is no excuse. You hear people say all the time that people don't go to hell because of sin. They go to hell because they rejected the gospel. I tell you that is not true. 
Rejecting the gospel is sin, but people go to hell because they are sinners. There are people who've never heard the gospel. And there is no gospel that says, well, they can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and go, well, there's God somewhere. I'm going to serve him like that. No, that, that is so ridiculous. That would be almost like saying, let's don't evangelize people like that so they'll have hope. If we go tell them about Jesus and they reject it, now they're going to hell. There is no other gospel. There is no other name that you can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He says, I know you did it in ignorance, and so the, ru- the rulers did that also. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is, this is, uh, remis, uh, this is similar to the walk to Emmaus when Jesus came aside those two men, one of them was named Cleopas, I don't know the other guy's name, but as they were going to Emmaus, Jesus began to walk with him, and he says, what, are, what things are you talking about? And they're just like, wow, what are you, some kind of stranger? Don't you know what's happened? We thought this Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to deliver us from the Romans and establish the kingdom. And now they've crucified him, and some women have said, the, the tomb is empty. We don't even know what's going on. And then the greatest Bible study in the New Testament took place with two men. It says he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he began to explain all the scriptures, how it was all fulfilled in Christ. He explained things like Genesis 3.15 in the fall. And he says, did you not understand what it meant that this serpent, he said, this seed was going to come and he was going to bruise his heel, but he was going to crush his head? Did you not understand that was talking about me? Did you not understand that Genesis 22, when Abraham saw my day, I talked about that, and when he saw the ram caught in the thicket by his horns and and how that God said he will provide himself a lamb for the offering, did you not know that was talking about me? Did you not know the 22nd Psalm was talking about me? Did you not know that Isaiah 52 and 53, when they talked about ripping my beard out, and spitting in my face, and beating me beyond recognition, and how the Father was going to crush me for your sake. You didn't know that was talking about me? That's what Peter's referencing. He says, all the prophets. How Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled And then he says this, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Oh, you guilty, wicked sinners, you're guilty. But God, who is rich in mercy, he's saying, repent and turn around. You don't have to keep going that way. You don't have to keep drinking down sin like it was water. There are some of you sitting here today that you know every night you go to bed, you you have so much doubt in your mind. You know the things you're doing are wrong. And you're so filled up with pride and you don't even realize it's pride. You're trying to fix yourself. And all the while, God's calling out, repent. You know what, he's, you know what repent means? Just stop 
arguing with God. Stop somehow trying to say, I'm not that bad. You know, say, I'm as bad as you say I am, God. And I need someone to save me. It's repentance is coming in agreement with God. It's, 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 it's saying, God, what you said about me is true. And I'm so tired of carrying this burden. I don't know how to get deliverance from it. I've tried drinking. I've tried sex. I've tried drugs. I've tried all these things. And yet it's just there. It's there. It's there. He says, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Justin talked this morning about what it means to be justified. That when someone comes to faith in Christ and says, I'm just, I have no, listen, there are no other alternatives. You look at all the world religions, Muhammad, dead, Buddha, dead, the gods of the Hindus, dead, rocks, stones, trees. They're the only one that's alive. Is Jesus Christ. He's the only living hope. That's it. That's it. Yes, it's exclusive. Yes, I'm not politically correct. To, to be justified, to have your sins blotted out, that God would look at you and say, I declare you not guilty. Your sins have been washed. They've been blotted out of my book. Because when I look at you as a believer, all I see is the righteousness of my son. And then he says this. He says, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. The times of refreshing may come. You remember in, in, in Matthew 11 when he says, all ye that are heavy laden... You're weary, you're heavy laden, you're burdened. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. You can try if you want. You can try to keep all the commandments. You can burden yourself down with that. I remember when I was younger, I was in my 20s, and I was in a church that we was legalistic. We we kept all the commandments. And I remember I had a standard set that I that I thought, this is this is the standard where you've got to be. And I couldn't reach it. Now the crazy thing is you think you gotta keep all the commandments, but I can't, so what do I do? I lower the standard. And I can't reach it. And I lower it and I can't reach it. I've had prisoners tell me that they're perfect. They've been saved and they haven't committed a sin in eight, nine, ten, twelve years. To my response is this. Well, you just need to repent of that sin too. And I said, I'll just show you that you cannot do it. You don't have to pick all 613 commands in the Old Testament and the 149 extras that they added on because that wasn't enough for them. I just want you to pick out one, just one command. And let's see if you can keep it for the next six months perfectly. And when I say perfectly, I don't mean externally only, but inwardly. That your very motive, your very thoughts, your very intents with that commandment have to be perfectly pure all the time. You ought to see the looks on the faces. See, we're good sometimes, almost good, at least fooling people doing things externally. 
But inwardly, that's a big different story, is it not? He says, repent, turn, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come. You can lay aside that burden. You can feel those times of refreshing and the presence of God in your life. Yes, we're going to go through trials. Man, I'm going to tell you something. When Corey Tinboom was in the prisoner of war camp, infested with lice and fleas, there were times of refreshing there. The presence of God was with them. We've got a false understanding of what these things mean. And that he may send Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's talking about this. He's saying there's going to be times of refreshing right now. And there's going to be this time that He's going to send Christ. Now, we have the ascension in chapter 1, and we're going to have the second advent sometime down the road. But through this time, God is going to give us times of refreshing. And what does that really mean? He's going to give us those times, just like the road to Emmaus, when Christ comes and walks with us. When he, when he vanished out of their sight, the two men said, did not our hearts burn within us? While he walked with us and talked with us on this way. Oh, you'll be going through the roughest time of your life. And God will send that time of refreshing in your life. But I'll tell you this. Now, I'll just say this about this little passage right here that I'm on. People are divided. Okay. But here's what I'm going to tell you on this. If you don't know Christ, you will never know times of refreshing. You will never know when he goes on and he says, whom heaven must receive until the restoring of all things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. What's he referring to? Well, do you remember over there in 1 7 in, in chapter 1 of Acts when they, in, in verse 6, they said, when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. He says, you don't even need to know that. But what you need to do is go proclaim the gospel. And now he's telling these people, repent. That your sins may be blotted out. These times of refreshing may come. Because Christ is going to come back. He's going to restore all things. And then he says, look. He says, Moses said. I'll just wait. Sometimes he tricks us. What does Peter do next? He he appeals to Moses. He said, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now, why do they continually appeal to Moses? Because so much of the time, they felt like the attack was against Moses and the temple and the law. I mean, Moses had very high credentials in in Judaism. But he says, Moses spoke of Christ. He told him back in what Deuteronomy 18, 
he says, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me, but so much greater than him. And he says, and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then he says, and all the prophets who spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days. It's amazing how God takes people that are uneducated and unlearned. They never studied under any other rabbi than Jesus Christ, who the Jews didn't esteem very highly and put him to death. And yet they are able to take these passages and open them up. How are they able to do that? Because the Holy Spirit is working through these men. Church, I want to encourage you today that your life is not so planned out that you miss these opportunities. I mean, I want to ask you something. What if when Peter and John were heading into the temple, John goes, hey, Peter, there's a there's a crippled man. Well, John, we're here to pray. We're running a little bit late anyway. We've got to get in there and pray. And they just walked on by him and just did the thing they were going to do. Matter of fact, we don't even see that they get to pray. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine walking in with this guy? I don't know what his name was. Joe? Joe, calm down, man. You're going to cause a scene. We're here to pray, brother. I don't think they were doing that. Church, we have to, we have to take every day as a day that God, what is God going to use me in today? What opportunity is God setting before me today? We, we need to, you know, you, you, you go back and look at this and it's, it's funny because in 1 Peter 3.15, he writes and he says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter could write those things later because he lived these things here. He didn't real, he didn't even start the day out thinking I'm going to heal anybody or I'm going to preach this message. He just was simply going his daily life and he was going to the temple to pray. And the Holy Spirit brought all this together. And I want to show you something else. They didn't heal this man for the, the, the primary purpose of healing a man. God always uses these miracle, miraculous events and it's always for what? It is a platform to step up on and proclaim the gospel. And so he goes like this. He, he, he goes on here and he says, when he talks about that, you know, in verse 24, he says, the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him and they proclaim these days. And then he said, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first, talking about the Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter starts off telling them how they're guilty. You've denied the true Messiah. You delivered him over. You killed him. 
You asked for a murderer to be released and you wanted him to be crucified. But here's the hope. Here's the good news. He said, you're the sons of those prophets that prophesied of those things. When he's talking about, he says, when he told Abraham, he says, in your offspring. He's talking about Christ. This is where me and the dispensationalists, we just bang heads like crazy. It says in Galatians 3, 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. In the old King James, it says, and to his seed. And it does not say to offsprings or to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's where the promises are fulfilled. I want to encourage you as believers today, for everybody here that knows the Lord, you know you've been born again. You are His witnesses. You are on mission. It is not only your duty, but it is your privilege to be able to proclaim the gospel. I want to ask you something. What is taking precedent in your life over God today? I mean, what is your greatest passion? Is it your hobbies? Is it your job? I've never understood those guys. Like, man, they're just so, it's like, man, I just live for, no, okay, I, I go to work, I try to do my job, but I'm ready to get out of there. Is it your children? Is it your spouse? Christ has to be preeminent. He has to be your greatest joy. Isn't it amazing if anybody, like if you're a sports fan or I'll even use this for some of the ladies. Fix her upper. Man, don't the ladies love to talk about Joanna, right? Man, what a, ah. she, she seemed like a very awesome person. I'll just say that. You have no problem t- telling people about Joanna Gaines, do you? How awesome she is. Guys have no problem talking about their favorite sports stars. Matter of fact, you're ready to debate, fight who the greatest basketball player is, which we all know that's Michael Jordan, right? So we all, I mean, here's the thing. But when it comes to Christ, we won't share him with anyone. And I don't understand that coming from people who say they're Christians. Christian, you are on mission Your life is not this, and you add Christ to it. You add church to it. That is your life first and foremost. And for those of you sitting here that don't know Christ, we'll go out on the streets, and I'll tell you just like I tell them. Your argument today may be, well, when I, when I, when I get older, I'll, I'll do this. You, you don't have a guarantee of getting older. Go read the paper. There's obituary. Every day there's somebody who has died. You do not know when that day is coming. God does know when that day is coming. And I want to plead with you today. If you don't know Christ, repent. Turn from your sins. I promise you, God does have a great plan for your life. You're not going to get it reading Joe Olstein's book. 
You are going to get it from reading the scriptures. And you're going to get that from following Christ. But do not think that you have tomorrow promised to you. The only thing you do know is that you will die one day and you will stand before the one true holy God, the judge of all the earth, and you will not say anything. You will hear the words, depart from me into everlasting punishment. And I'm not trying to say it to scare you. It is a scary thing. I am trying to appeal to your heart today that this is the day the Lord has given you. This is the day of salvation. It's today. It is now. I don't just get up here and preach these things just to be expositing Scripture. I'm not just doing this just so we can do something at church. I believe one of the greatest mission fields today in the American culture is in the American church. God is pleading with you, turn from your sins, come to Him today.